Welcome to episode 316 of the Design Details Podcast. I'm Brian Levin. And I'm Marshall Black. Welcome back for another episode. Brian, we have a jam-packed one today. Yes, we have so much to get through. But before we do, I want to call out that we are now a listener-supported podcast. Woo-hoo. Woo-hoo, indeed. If you've been listening to the show for a while, if this is your first episode ever, we are now working with you, dear listener, to make this show possible. So we've set up a Patreon. It's at patreon.com slash design details, where we're counting on listener support from you to help make the show possible. That's going to editing and producing and, and powering all of the software that makes this show possible. Your support means the world to us. We just started last week, and we've got some uh, a lot of learnings that we're going to talk about, but... Uh, your support means so much, and if you are enjoying the show, please help us out. Go to patreon.com slash design details. Just a buck. Even a, even a buck. Even a dollar helps. Anything. Yeah, the lowest tier starts at $1 per month. And if that's like so low that you think, oh, that won't actually be contributing, it actually will. Like To make this show sustainable every dollar really does help. Um, so if you're, you know, just want to dip your toes, like the lowest commitment possible, $1 really means a lot. But if you can't swing it, no big deal. Keep listening for free. The show will always be free. Yeah. The show will always be free, but there, but there will be more extra stuff yeah. if you join a Patreon. So check it out, see if it appeals to you at all. And uh, if you want to help us out, we would very much appreciate it. Here, here's one way to think about it. So the next time you're ordering your artisanal pour over at St. Frank's in <laughs> yeah, San Francisco. Yeah. Are, are you doing for just the price of a <laughs> cup of coffee? For just the price of an artisanal pour over from St. Frank's, which is like uh-huh. $12. So less uh-huh. than the price of that. Think of it like buying a coffee for our, our producer or energy drink for our editor. That's what those contributions are going towards. So that four bucks a month, less than the price of a cup of coffee, that really does help us make the show possible. So once again, patreon.com slash design details. And for everyone who has already become a Patreon signed up and, and is pa- patronizing us, is that what, is that what the <laughs> verb is? Patronizing uh, us? Yeah, How dare pat- you? <laughs> <laughs> as soon as I started to say it, I was like, this can't be the verb, but it works for me. Uh, so yeah. if you're already patronizing us, uh, <laughs> we appreciate it. And thank you, thank you for doing that. More than I expected actually so good start yeah so as promised we have some shout outs to give so our our second tier of the patreon is at four dollars a month you're gonna get a sweet ass shout out right here on the air and we got some four dollar and up shout outs to give so let's begin huge thank you to our initial batch of day ones day ones day ones oh geez abhishek warakar adam carroll andrew crandall Aurora Plegasuelo, Brandon Weiss, Cameron Campbell, Claudio Vallejo, Christian Ruiz, Doris Saturday, Effie Zhang, Essa Salat, hope I'm saying that one right, Jeff Parsons, Joseph Brugan, Carl Koch, Chris Puckett, Kyle Mitchell, Manny X, don't know what the last name is, but just Manny with a lot of N's and then a capital X. Max Stoiber and Sam Mason. Y'all, this week you made our week. Yeah. True round of applause for our day ones. Thank you. Thank you. Day ones. Like when you buy a new console on day one, you get like a special controller that says like day one. Like when I got my new Xbox, the latest Xbox One S or whatever, it was like day one. Xbox One S One X One. That one? (laughs) (laughs) Something. something. Pro Max. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Uh, but on the controller, it said day one, and I've always cherished that thing. I wish we could put a badge that said day ones. Hey, guess what, Marshall? Hmm. We can do that. So well, we can. I'm working on a supporters page for design details, and our day ones are going to get that sick ass day one badge. I'll make it happen. So if you made it in between when we released the episode and when we're recording now, which was really only like four days then that counts as day one. Yeah, it means you're on top of your shit. Mm-hmm. And, and <laughs> technically, uh, you know, for fairness, Brian, I think what we should do is any subsequent patrons between now and when this episode comes out on Wednesday should also probably fall in the day one category. Okay, so first, first weekers get the day one status. Yeah. Okay, cool. So that's going to happen. It's only fair. All right, so I want to get a little bit into follow-up, and I don't want to wax on too long about our Patreon but I think this has been a really cool learning experience. So I wanted to just share 
for people who are interested, uh, we'll have this as the, the follow-up chapter in your podcast player. Feel free to skip it if you're tired of the Patreon. But if you're interested in the, like the, the I guess, businessy side of this. How the sausage is made. How slightly. the sausage is made. Yeah, let's dig into it. So we launched the Patreon on Wednesday, tweeted a bunch about it. We released the episode. The episode walked through all the tiers and all that. Uh, and so here we are four days later. And just some quick numbers. So we have 23 patrons, and those patrons are collectively pledging $158 per month, which is fucking amazing. The interesting thing to me was how consistent everybody was was falling into the the $4 or the $8 tier. So we had a, a couple people at the $1 tier, which is fantastic. But basically, the 4 and 8 are like kind of the sweet spot. So yeah, it sort of made me reflect a little bit on the higher tiers. Like maybe we were misaligned there or maybe we've missed something and need to iterate on those higher tiers. Uh, how does that strike you, Marshall? You know, anything more than 10 bucks a month is a lot to give every month. I think that's about the tolerance that people have, you know, built up yeah. given all the subscription things and stuff. So I think asking for more than $10 a month is a little steep, especially if we haven't produced any extra stuff that you can get right away. Right, right. right. That makes sense. Yeah, so I think we're going to learn from that. I think we'll be patient here. I think the point is we want to just give this a little bit of time, see how things go. We're getting feedback from people, which has been great. Talk about that in a sec. But uh, yeah, if you're listening and you also maybe felt like the tiers were a little bit off, let us know. I think we're down to iterate on those, both the the price, the, the number of tiers, as well as the rewards. This is a learning process for us. Chances are we won't get more stingy, though. If anything, we will expand or like offer lower price tiers or lower the prices of existing tiers. You know what I mean? Like, if you're already giving us money, we're not going to take things away from you. Oh yeah, yeah. It'll always be additive. Correct. And we're we're working on like what are more kinds of rewards we can give, which we'll actually be able to talk about a little bit later. The second thing that's been cool, so just before we started recording this, about two hours ago, I made a patron-only post on our page. So basically our Patreon has like this mini, it's like a news feed. I don't know how to describe this, like a Facebook page. Yeah, it's like posts, yeah. Yeah, we can make a post that only patrons can see, and then we can just have a conversation in there. And it was, it's been awesome. Like five people, four people uh, left comments in the last hour and a half, two hours, and they've been asking great questions like our thoughts on the uh, role and importance of job titles, how the role of user research and user testing fits into our workflow, the motivation for design details, um, getting started in graphic design. Like these are cool questions and it's been really fun to answer those, I guess, privately. I don't know. I, I like doing things in public as well, but somehow this feels intimate and rewarding to like participate in that conversation uh yeah i think this is a really cool fast iteration way we can interact with the community and offer some value that you know gives them value for the money that they're giving us yeah so that's fun uh we're you know as i said we're learning this will be iterative so thanks everyone who's helping us learn as we go thank you thank you thank you one more tiny bit of follow-up i think my cool things like three weeks ago was the new mx master 3 mouse which I ordered alongside the MX Keys, which is Logitech's like newest first-party keyboard, and they're supposed to all pair together. Yeah, part of this MX family. So just a tiny bit of follow-up. I got the keyboard, been using it. Dragging stuff and back, back and forth between computers. Swip swap, so fast, so efficient. It is good, but when it doesn't work, boy, oh boy, is it frustrating. Well, that seems kind of like an all-or-nothing thing. Either yeah. it works well or it doesn't. Yeah, so for people who have been on the fence, here's what I'll say is it works seamlessly like 90% of the time. <laughs> 90% of the time it works every, <laughs> every time. time. Yeah. And when it doesn't work, I've I've sort of like mentally debugged what I think might be happening. And I think the biggest problem is when you switch back and forth too fast, it can't sync the devices in time. So you can end up in a situation where your mouse is in one device and your keyboard's in another device. And it's like fucking hell because you, you're like looking at something, but your keyboard's doing something on another display, oh, no. which is not ideal. Yeah. So I did one thing that helped, which was I made it so that you have to be pressing control 
to and then when if you're pressing control and drag your mouse to the edge of your screen then it will transition to the second screen in my case from my mac to my pc so it's intentional yeah and then i just key bound control to one of the extra buttons on the mouse so it's still one-handed i don't have to like remember to press control it's it's right at, at my thumb i can just press that and drag over and then the second thing that i found was helpful was just leave it there for like at least i don't know two seconds, three seconds, like don't go back and forth too fast. Otherwise it sort of gets out of sync. Is this better than having two mice and two keyboards? It is the mouse part for sure. The keyboard, it just saves desk space. Like I've been able to tuck all my other shit away. So I've saved a lot of desk space. So in that, that area, uh, worth it. I would say if you're on the fence, I don't know. Maybe give it time. Like a lot of this seems like software that can be patched and they'll they'll learn, you know, where these bugs are coming from. So maybe this will get better in time. Is it a good mouse and keyboard if you don't have two computers? Like is it just good for the oh, average oh. user? Yeah, it's great. The keyboard's comfy. I personally need a, a wrist rest for my keyboards. It's like pretty low profile. Oh yeah. So I'd recommend getting something for your wrist. But mm-hmm. otherwise, yeah, I mean the you know the mouse is fantastic and then the keyboard is good. I would say the keyboard's good, not fantastic. Like 7 out of 10, 8 out of 10. Cool. All right, let's follow up. Let's do a listener question. Yeah, let's do it. All right, this listener question is from Anonymous. So as we mentioned before, if you have a question you want to ask us, but you want it to remain anonymous, just send us a DM or email us, and we'll we'll cross-post that question over to our GitHub repo, and I'll ask it for you. So Anonymous asks... I am trying to get from a junior position to an intermediate position at the moment. Being more proactive is something that I need to do after talking to my manager and also after listening to one of your episodes. I'm still not sure about how being more proactive should be defined. I work in a startup. There's only two designers. There are things that are not defined that I could work on and show it to my manager. But at the same time, the management seems to be keeping new things very close to themselves. I barely know what's going to happen and what the timeline is. So yeah, ultimate question. How do you define being more proactive and what do you think designers like me can do to be more proactive at my level, which again is transitioning from junior to intermediate. So Anonymous wants to be proactive, but at the same time, I don't want to come across the line and have my manager think that I'm going too far. So proactive without being overeager. Yeah, I really liked the way this question was phrased or, or at least like framed, I should say, because there definitely is the risk of either overstepping your bounds or appearing as if you're trying to take control that isn't deserved or maybe you're taking on too much and you know risking burnout. Like these, these are risks that should be avoided when you're trying to be proactive. But yeah, then there's this other thing where there's two of them. So if you're like super proactive, it almost looks like you're trying to like one up the only other person who you work with and you don't want to make that relationship a toxic one. Yes. So, uh, but I think you can mitigate some of this stuff, right? Like first thing I would take into account would be chain of command, right? So if you come up with a cool idea and do some work on it and you want to show it to somebody, don't show it like to a engineer first or something like that, because that could be seen as like, oh, they're trying to get buy-in for their feature before actually showing it to their manager, et cetera. You kind of want to show it to, you want to respect the chain of command so that no one is surprised. You're not skipping any levels. Another thing to take into account too is that you know no one else is going to work on the things that you're working on. So like you mentioned, like an idea that hasn't been fleshed out, like you could potentially even ask before you do it, be like, hey, I wanted to do this, right? And actually, maybe this is the best thing to do anyways, is like, I identified this opportunity for us, and I have bandwidth to pursue it. Is this something that would be okay for me to work on? Not not that you think I should work on, you, you would be saying this to your manager. Not that I should be working on it or whatever, but like, it, would it be okay for me to do this? Would I be stepping on any toes? No? Okay, cool. And go Go do it that way. That gives your manager the opportunity to say, whoa, no, don't waste your time on this. We're actually not going to do that. You didn't know this, but yeah, we actually, we deprioritize that idea. Don't, don't waste time on it. Nobody's going to work on it anytime soon. Or they can say, oh, the other person is working on it. You didn't know about this, but somebody's already doing this. Don't duplicate effort. Right, right. Right. So I think there are ways to, to mitigate it, but ultimately you have the right idea, which is like, yeah, expand your scope. 
um, expand your reach, whether that's cross-functionally or just you know doing things outside of, and this would be a, a wider answer for more people because it sounds like he's just at a startup that is only a few people. But I would say like you could even expand to outside your your close group. So if you work on one very specific feature, you could see how you can help people working on other features, etc. Yeah, basically just expand your reach and do stuff that isn't asked of you. Sometimes you might want to ask if you should be doing the stuff that's not being asked of you first, right? So that you don't do the things I was talking about earlier, uh, the bad stuff. But uh, otherwise, yeah, I think proactive is just about identifying the best use of your time outside of what is required of you and pursuing those things and uh, making sure that you message it in a way that it's not perceived as overreach. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. I, I think I agree. I think we could add on and even this conversation reminded me, I had to pull it up, but episode 309, we talked about career progression for product designers. Mm-hmm. And I noticed that the question was really focused on like producty ways to be proactive. So you, you talked specifically about, oh, the management sort of keeps the timeline close to the chest. I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know what features they want me to build. But the good news is there's other ways to be proactive that are not product related. So I think in that episode, we talked like four broad themes would be difficulty of of projects that you work on, the amount of impact that they have. But then there's these other two themes, which are leadership and community. So leadership and community might also be great ways to think about how to be proactive. So specifically like on the community side would be, I think we talked about non-reciprocal contributions. How do you elevate the culture? Uh, what does hiring look like? Like those are cool areas where it won't feel like you're trying to one up your, you know, your peer, this other designer. It's like, uh, you know, we're hiring. Let's talk together about how we can make this hiring process better. Or you could be the one that figures out how to design the the job listing or, or like the interview pipeline. It's also things with the non reciprocal contributions to cross functional partners, like. Can you just go hang out with your PMs or engineers and see if they have quirky process bugs that they keep running into? Like, is it a giant pain in the ass for engineers to work in your design files? Can you automate that? Can you figure out great ways to export, you know, code from Figma or something like that? Mm-hmm. Uh, those are proactive things that have nothing to do with the product and it's more around process. Uh, so yeah. that, I don't know. that Those would be other things that you could think about or like keep an open eye to to working on that I would classify as proactive, but it's not, I don't think you're going to get in trouble for trying to improve process, I hope. Yeah, process is something I, I left out, and that's really important. If you if you notice that something is, some portion of the, the process is a bottleneck, like, you know, suggesting a, a template to make things easier or creating a folder structure or outlining a specific process of, like, this happens, then that happens, and this other thing happens to make it clear to everyone exactly what should be going in order, or even like naming conventions, any sort of process you can improve is probably going to help, especially because if it hasn't been fixed yet, probably nobody's thinking about it. Right, yeah. There is one more sentence in here also that I wanted to call out. You know, we obviously are missing a lot of context on your relationship with the manager, but the line at the end which says, I don't want to cross the line and have my manager think I'm going too far, in my mind, like a good manager relationship would be they would tell you if you're going too far. Like it mm-hmm. wouldn't be this silent thing that you're always having to guess if you're going too far or not. So one other way to think about this, like how do you have the kind of relationship with your manager where you could ask them like, hey, I, I want to do all these things. I have energy for it. I have bandwidth for it. But, you know, I'm concerned that you're going to think I'm looking too overeager that other people on the team will think I'm being too aggressive or something like that. What do you think? Like have that conversation with your manager, ideally to the point where they could tell you like, no, this is great. Or yeah, you know, like you're maybe gonna, I'm noticing you're doing all this stuff, but I think you're going to stretch yourself too thin and you might burn out. And I want to be careful of that like having that kind of conversation seems healthy will probably result in like a more trusting relationship where Hopefully it's not this guessing game of like, oh man, I'm paranoid that I'm doing the wrong thing and nobody's going to tell me if I'm doing the wrong thing. And even even asking and being told no is a good thing because it shows like, hey, I tried, you know, like I, you, you want me to be more proactive. I, I offered to be more proactive in, in different areas. You said it wasn't the right time right now, but now that's on their radar. So when something does come up and they need that extra bandwidth, they can come to you if, if 
you know, that's a thing that's available. But yeah, at the very least, you've you've let them know like, hey, balls in your court. I'm ready to be proactive. Like uh, if you won't let me do the things I've suggested, just let me know when something does crop up and I'm ready to do it. Right. Yeah. Do you have an example of like a time you've been proactive or a time you've seen somebody else be proactive that seemed to have worked out well for that person? For you? Yeah, I I have. Well, I mean, the stuff that immediately comes to mind would be things that my one of my direct reports has done. She's been killing it with process stuff, which is why I'm kind of upset I didn't think about it. And you're the one who mentioned process things. <laughs> um, yeah, but but yeah, like she's identified a lot of different bottlenecks or, or or weird kinks in our process that she's like made documents to just lay out very specifically. Like this is the order of how things go, and like basically documenting process is just as important as having the process itself so that people when in question can go and look and be like, Oh yeah. And not only documenting it, but creating a template for like, okay, here's this feature. Here's where we are in this process. It's like a tracking thing. That's been really helpful. But yeah, of myself, I don't know. I I try to help other teams all the time, especially with things that I know that I'm good at. I can't talk about anything specific from recently, but yeah, I'm I'm always like trying to help other teams and and contributing my my skills where others need it and and contributing feedback to to other product teams when I use their products. You know, it's like, hey, I use the living room app a lot, like the YouTube TV, uh-huh. not not the broadcast TV, but like the, in the living room, YouTube.com, but for the living room. <laughs> yes, yes. Our names are tough. Um, so I use that a lot. Like that's how I watch most of my YouTube content. So like I'm, I'm constantly talking to that team like, hey, this is this is buggy or have you thought about including this thing or I would love to see this here. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe that's more annoying than helpful. <laughs> I don't know. I don't think it's annoying. I mean, these are just, I think we're just trying to like spitball. Here's a bunch of different ideas, like grab onto one and, and see if it works. So those are some good ideas. I noticed or when you were talking about your report documenting process that reminded me of a coworker I had at Facebook. It was me and two other people and we were all going to be working on the same project, which was kind of a new thing. Like normally it'd been one designer per feature. But this time, three of us were going to be working on the same feature, which is like, oh, my God, how are we going to figure this out? And so one person just like crunched ahead of time and made a prototyping template with like a naming convention for things and a file organization for things. So that when we all showed up for the kickoff or whatever, he said, all right, I've already thought through how we're going to like need to prototype this kind of thing. And here's how the three of us can work off the same prototype but not be overriding each other's work, obviously. Mm-hmm. And then how we can like merge those the best decisions from each prototype back into the master prototype. And that was like a process problem that they didn't have to solve. Like we could have all just stumbled through that. Uh, but they were very proactive. And as a result, none of us had to think about it. We were just like, all right, cool. Here's the the base. And now we can all do our own thing. And we have a process to to merge changes back into that master prototype. It was great. That's Funny you mention that because I happen to be doing almost that exact same thing this weekend. Mm. I'm putting together like a master sketch file for a bunch of other people to use as as like a template thing. Like we all start from this point. This is the source of truth. And then everybody can go do their thing and then we'll compare. Yeah. And we all started from the same point. Anytime I hear source of truth now, I just picture the SpongeBob like waving a rainbow in the air. And then the caption is source of truth. <laughs> I'm like, too old for SpongeBob. I never watched SpongeBob. What the? F- I you know, know the meme I'm talking about, I right? see the memes all the time. <laughs> I, I think I know that one. I don't know. I only know SpongeBob in meme form. Like when yeah. they played at the Super Bowl, they played that like trumpet intro thing like everybody lost their goddamn minds i had no idea what was going on i was like oh this is spongebob but i don't what's this a reference to what was happening in the episode when this is you know happening i have no idea you're 10 years too old marshall apparently yeah i missed that i missed pokemon yeah but i got like thundercats and trl so i got that going for me (laughs) so what's up (laughs) yeah what's up you Uh, 90s kids All right. Thank you so much for asking that question, Anonymous. If we missed anything or if we can clarify anything, please follow up. Uh, I think I sent you a link to the GitHub issue that I opened from your question. So just DM me again and I'll add follow up there if we need to to address it in future episodes. Otherwise, hope that was useful. All right, Marshall. So the next phase 
of this episode it's is... Phase three, Kevin Feige is... <laughs> yeah, phase three of orchestrating this, this episode. Episode 316 audio universe is the de- design details audio universe. The D-Dow. The D-Dow. Yeah. We have promised for two weeks now that we would touch base on what happened at the latest Apple event uh, where they unveiled iPhone 11s and uh, some new software stuff, uh, as well as we had heard from a listener that we have been oddly silent on Android 10. So let's dig in a little bit here on what's new in the Apple land, as well as some of the changes that have been recently released with Android 10. We sort of compare and contrast. Okay, so... Uh, yeah, long-awaited, long-promised, finally here, iPhone 11 event, we're talking about it. <laughs> and because everyone has already talked about it, I want to talk about things that I haven't heard people talk about very much. So, just a few things. First thing I want to talk about is the the Apple Watch. This new Apple Watch has a variable refresh rate display. Do you know what I'm talking about, Brian? Yeah, that's for the always-on. Yeah, for the always-on display. Well, yeah, that's that's one thing. It's always-on display. But the the cool thing is that they can ramp down the refresh rate of the screen from 30 frames a second to, like, essentially one frame a second, or actually one hertz, which is, like, half a frame a second, to save battery. And also, like, you really only need it to refresh, like, one time a minute, ultimately, like, unless you're looking at the thing. But because the screen is always-on, that would really reduce your battery life if it was constantly at full brightness. So they reduce the brightness and they reduce the refresh rate, which I think is really, really smart. I think they introduced this idea on the iPad Pro with the, the ProMotion display that went, but I think that only went from like 60 hertz to 120 hertz. But yeah, so I, I think this is a really interesting thing to think about, especially from a design standpoint. Like, what does it mean if the app that you're making might ramp down its display rate, you know, if it's refresh rate, something to think about. Well, so I've loosely been following when people talk about it on the internet, and it seems to be that the initial reaction is actually pretty harmful for battery life, even with that adjustment. I've noticed people saying that they're seeing like 30% less battery life throughout the day. On their new watches? On the new watch. So they've turned off that always-on feature. That was the risk. That's the risk. Maybe that's an acceptable trade-off, or maybe like, okay, so in the presentation, the main feature that they seem to be talking about with always-on is like, the workout thing, right? Like you're doing a plank and you can't see your display with the timer. It's like, okay, maybe there's just an easy entry point or like a Siri controlled or app controlled way to initiate that always on. Like I would love it if it knew that I'm working out. So turn on the always on. Mm -hmm. And then as soon as the workout is completed, resume back to the sort of gestured on off display. I wonder if there's a uh, toggle for that in the control center. That would make it easy. Otherwise, you'd have to if you have to dig through settings general blah 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 every time you want to change it. it yeah, sucks. if you have to dig through settings, you'll never do it, right? Yeah. But if it's in the control center, I'd use that. Yeah, are you going to get the new watch? No, nah, I have no reason. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Nah. So, so, all right, let's keep moving on. So another thing that I thought was really interesting is they've changed the way, this is more of like a meta commentary on the on the event itself is they've changed the the word cloud they do at the end of each segment. They're like, here's the new thing. And there's a bunch of words in the background that kind of fit, like the cool shit is next to the middle. And then as, you know, as it goes out towards the edges, it's the least cool features like face ID is faster and whatever. Or they'll just throw some acronyms on there. Like (laughs) yeah, yeah, TTVLP display upgrade. Yeah. It's like (laughs) like, some some shit about the processor, like esoteric stuff. You have no idea what it means. There's like three people in the audience who are like, oh, that's impressive. But (laughs) three people in the audience just (laughs) shitting their pants. Oh my God, (laughs) it's happening. Yeah. But they've changed the way they do that now. It's not a word cloud anymore. They kind of have cut out a lot of that detritus. And now it's just like these big block sections it's like a almost like a pinterest board with uh different sized sections and and illustrative text and uh showing off like what the features actually are as opposed to just saying it in text so why do you think they did that i don't know it's more interesting to look at i think they've really they're treating the screen behind the presenter as part of the the composition like when when they're doing the camera shots like usually it's not like, okay, show the presenter and then cut to the slides and then show the presenter and cut to the slides. It's part of the whole frame. 
So I don't know. I think they're just getting more cinematic with the slides because they know that they're not going to be showing just the slides. They're going to be showing the presenter in front of the slides. And that's what's going to end up on fucking TechCrunch and Mac 9 to 5, whatever. But I think it's cool. They're really pretty. I want to know the viewer counts for their videos because I don't know how long they've been doing this, but it feels as though it's becoming increasingly the standard where when they launch a new product on the big hero image on apple.com, the two calls to action will always be like learn more and then watch the announcement or something. I think this year is like watch the keynote. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, it's usually watch the keynote. They started doing that, seems like a few years ago. I, I don't know. I don't have data on this, but I'm wondering if they're also realizing like this is a huge part of the shopping experience as well as people going back to the actual announcement. And they, that's a, a much more engaging way to get information like battery life and speed and processors. Like that's a more engaging way to do it than just having a list of text. Mm -hmm. Well, this is the first year that they streamed the live event on YouTube. You could always watch the live event if you had a device. You had to watch it in Safari. In Safari, yeah. yeah. So dumb. <laughs> On an iPad or a MacBook or an yeah. iPhone or whatever. Now, anybody could watch it live streaming on YouTube, which I think yeah. is really cool. Hopefully, they'll continue to do that. World's most valuable technology company cannot support non-Safari browsers. <laughs> cool, cool. <laughs> they turned off uh, DVR, though, so you couldn't like skip back. Oh, I see. You know what I'm saying? Like on, on YouTube, one, one of the best like live features on YouTube is you can you can like go back. It's like recording as it's as it's happening. Yeah, yeah. It's DV, we call it DVR. DVR. So like, yeah. but I guess you can turn that off. And they turned it off. So like, there were times where I missed something and I couldn't go back, or like I had a meeting and I had to pause it. And then when I started watching again, it was like half an hour later. That's where I want to know the the download numbers because if this if we're talking a hundred thousand people streaming, obviously it's higher than that. But like, if you get into the low numbers, it's like okay, they're just sort of being silly about what they're restricting or not. But if you get into the millions of simultaneous streamers, I wonder when the... You mean concurrent viewers? Concurrent viewers, whatever. What did mm -hmm. I say? Streamers. Streamers. Concurrent viewers. Yeah, when you get into the millions, certainly there's got to be some like technical complications of you know pushing that much data over the wire. So mm -hmm. Yeah, they're not a video service platform, you know? Like... Well, hang on. <laughs> <laughs> they are now. Yeah, that's true. I'm not going to talk about that too much. C looks kind of interesting. I'll watch that. Yeah, we're talking about Apple TV. Oh, yeah, Apple TV Plus. It's really cheap, though, $4.99. I don't want to talk about this stuff because it doesn't matter for the for the people who are listening, but uh, that is interesting. It's a very low price for, I guess it's only like 16 shows or 12 shows or whatever, but still, that's way lower than the $10 you would expect. So the last thing I want to talk about is naming conventions Brian. Naming conventions Brian. Hit me. All right, so this has bothered me. <laughs> For so long. And I think they finally fixed it. I think they finally have gotten it under control. So previously, we had a TikTok. We've talked about this on the show before. Yep. We had a TikTok thing where you do an iPhone, whatever, and then you have an iPhone, whatever, S. And then the next one, whatever, plus. And, but then they had like the, <laughs> I said plus earlier, but they actually have plus as part of the name. And then S, and it just becomes this jumble of letters and symbols and stuff, especially when you threw in 10 or X or what are we supposed to call it? Like, that just became really confusing. So 10S plus. Yes, 10S plus. That's ridiculous. Anyways, so the, the interesting thing to me is that they have finally got it under control where it's like, okay, we don't have an R for the for the cheap one. We don't have an S for the tick version or whatever. I think probably what they're going to do is the next iPhone is going to be the 12th and the next one's going to be the 13. No, no, no more of this S shit. And it's not going to be an R. That's just the iPhone iPhone number, right? That's the that's the entry level. It's not an R. It's not like, uh, you know, some extra letter on top of it. No, no, that's the thing. And then we have iPhone Pro, just like MacBooks and MacBook Pros. We have MacBook Pro and, uh, sorry, iPhone Pro. And then the big one is called iPhone uh, Pro Max. And that leaves open room for them to make an iPhone Max, which is a larger version of the entry level phone, right? So you have this this quadrant, this matrix of like, Pro and Max, and you know whether it has that or not. And those are the four iPhones that you have. Right now, there's just the three, but there's room for that in the future. It makes me so happy. <laughs> no more S's, no more SEs and R's and pluses and all that shit. Just like, just like the MacBook line. They've got, they've got that under control for a long time. Like now I feel like iPhone numbering is reasonable and I'm happy. I mean, I agree, but we won't know until next year, right? Like if they do the iPhone yeah. 11 
S Pro Max. I think everyone, including pro consumers, are going to be so fucking confused. It's like, I can't even pronounce this phone. Here's why I don't think they'll do that is because, so like I mentioned earlier, they've been on a TikTok thing. They're on like a TikTok tack thing. I don't know what the third one is, but they're on like a three year cycle now, right? Where we had three years of, well, actually we had four years of the six model phone, but like we're going to have three years of this iPhone 10 thing, right? And that's going to be the 10, the 10s, and the 11. Hardware form factor, yeah. Form factor with, with the notch and the same screen. Like the only way you can tell this phone apart from the two phones before it is looking at the camera module on the back, right? So like it makes me think that because we're on a three level thing, S can't cut it anymore. Even if they wanted to, they'd have to add another level. Well, they'd be like R. the <laughs> iPhone 11 S2 or something SR2. like that, right? SR71. <laughs> Blackbird. Ah, yeah. Nice. Good good reference. I only know one song that SR71 sings. <laughs> oh, I, I thought you were referring to the military plane, but okay. Oh, I was referring to the hit 90s band SR71. Oh, well, they're named after a uh, a supersonic... You know what an SR71 Blackbird looks like? I do. It's like yeah, a, yeah, yeah. The yeah, yeah. Lockheed Martin SR71 Blackbird, yeah. So anyways, those are the three things that I wanted to mention. I wanted to talk about that the refresh rate on the watch. I want to talk about the uh, new grid display on during the presentation and this naming convention fix. Finally, I feel like it's better. And the future is bright. You can sleep now. You can rest, Tony. <laughs> I'm just mainly happy that they moved away from the Roman numerals. Like, can you imagine how confusing it would be if they had actually done the letter X and the letter I for the 11? I mean, they they, they had to do the X because of OS 10, right? Like, that was that that's like a DNA kind of a thing. For I know, Apple. but it's, like they had it's a to. bad part of the DNA because it's so <laughs> inherently confusing. Like, go talk to the average consumer, and it is the iPhone X. Like, that is what it is. And it causes a rift in how people talk about the products and how Apple markets the products. And it's dumb. In the same way that it's now Mac OS and not Mac OS 10 Sierra. It's just Mac OS Catalina. Catalina, yeah. Yeah. Have you seen the billboards for the Pixel, like Google Pixel? And it's like a, it's, it's bisected down the middle. On the left side is like an image and it looks bad. And on the right side is the same image, but it looks good. And on the right side, it says, you know, Pixel 3. And on the left side, for the longest time, I thought it said iPhone 10, iPhone nope. X. Says but it, it doesn't say X. It just says Phone X, like, like so Brand brilliant. X. It's like brilliant. From the old, it's genius, right? Like, yeah. so, but but a great marketing choice, right? Because yeah. I, I saw that, that those billboards dozens of times before I realized there was no I before, before the phone. So yep. generic Phone X. Yes. I imagine they'll be happy to get away from that. <laughs> but yeah, I, th- I think the future is bright for naming conventions on the, the, phone, the phone scale. Yeah. The future is bright indeed. All right, so the new phones are shipping, and those now have iOS 13. And as listener Yule Albert posed to us on September 12th, so we're a little late to this one, uh, Yule said, no mention of the Android 10 release? So Yule, here we go. Well, was he really that mad? <laughs> you, How you, dare you? you? So much anger, so Yule much vitriol. pissed. His profile photo, he changed it specifically to say, pissed at Design Details host. <laughs> It's display name. Yeah, yeah fist at design details. Uh, would love to hear your thoughts on the revamped gestures. All right, well, here's our thoughts on the revamped gestures. So, Marshall, you've upgraded to Android 10? Yes, I'm on it. I have a Pixel 3. What do you have? Pixel 3a. I'm on that budget, boy. Okay. iPhone XR. Yeah, the iPhone XR Max Pro 3. <laughs> so the new gestures, first of all, a little confusing because... If you go to the android.com homepage, they have a huge section of their marketing for Android 10, which is all about the new gesture navigation. But in order to enable it, you have to go deep, 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 deep into the system settings. Boy, oh boy. And enable, it's like new gestures. I had to walk you through it. Yeah, you had to like literally explain how to find how to turn this on. Yep. And and I had to search for it. In settings, I was like, how do I, I'm like, gestures? Yeah. Luckily, you can search. But yeah, so in system, in gestures... There's one setting that is called system navigation, and <laughs> mine was set to the previous because I upgraded from nine yeah. or S or T. What the fuck, I don't know. Q backwards. Q. No, this is Q. Q R. P. I was from P. How about a P? How do the letters work? Okay, Pancakes. let me start that. Let me start this over. <laughs> Previously, I was on Android 
P, and that had the two-button navigation. And, and I, I think I specifically changed the two-button navigation that was introduced maybe in P or in, in O. But before that, it was always like the three-button navigation. You have like the, the triangle on the left, that's back. And you have the circle in the middle, that's home. And you have the square on the right, and that's like app switcher, right? Yep. And then they changed it to two-button, where it's just the back. And then you have a little kind of like a home indicator, like on, on iPhone, where you can swipe up from the bottom and do some stuff there, but it wasn't exactly like iPhone. And now they have this gesture navigation that is just like iOS. It is just like iOS, except it's not. Except it's not quite, but, but it's damn close. It's very, very close. It's damn close. And it's enough that I, I, I don't know anybody who worked on this. I don't know what the reasoning was behind it, but it makes me think that anybody switching over from iOS to Android at this point should have zero problem getting adjusted as far as navigational goes. It will be very familiar. So, all right, let's... In order of operations here, first impressions, bad. Had to go into settings to even turn this on. It was hard to find. So the second thing for me is it is so familiar to iOS in in the way it works. So you swipe up from the bottom of the screen to go home if you're within an app. Same animation, though. Like the, the icon drops back to where it is on the home screen if you came from an app on a home screen. Like all that animation is very, very similar. They also introduced edge swiping to go back and forward within apps, which is a very iOS-y thing. Android has historically leaned on using the back in the bottom left of the system nav or having like explicit arrows. Am I wrong? I think you're wrong though. (sighs) So you can swipe from the left edge of the screen to go back and you can swipe from the right edge of the screen to go back. (laughs) They're both back. It's back all the way down. Forward is back. Back is back. That seems to not make sense to me. But I guess it makes sense for left and right hand people. No, it doesn't make sense at all. It literally doesn't make sense. All right. No, I mean, swiping from the opposite edge of the screen might be harder on larger phones. So if you're right-handed, swiping in from the right edge of the screen to go back is easier than reaching all the way over. It's predicated on the motion of the view as it transitions in, and it it makes sense if you use an Android transition where like the view just sort of fades in, then I could see like, all right, swiping left or right dismisses the view. But if you tap on something, like for example, I have the Facebook app open. If I tap on someone's name from a, a card in my feed, it pushes the view in from the right to left. Mm-hmm. In that case, the direction of the view implies some sort of spatial awareness. So swiping from right to left again should not take me back. Like that doesn't make sense. Mm-hmm. Agree. <laughs> okay, so we're on the same page that this is confusing. Yeah, uh, forward should not go back. It's a I'm gonna take a stand. I might have to die on this hill, but it's one I'm willing to die on. Yeah. No, it, it doesn't make any sense. But I'm wondering if it's just a right hand left hand thing like the if you're right handed it's way easier to swipe from the right edge than it is from the left edge especially if you have one of these enormo phones well so here's what i wanted to talk about is just like what is causing some of these decisions to be made and i feel like a lot of this is the design team trying to account for at this point billions of devices that are using a different type of navigation i think they're trying to be as accommodating as possible to what you could presume is hundreds of millions of people used to that back arrow always being available. So if you're going to get rid of it, you want to make it as easy as possible for people to go back, I guess. I don't know. This feels like a legacy support kind of decision to me, less so than like this actually makes sense from a user experience point of view or from like a app spatial navigation point of view. And it can't be for 2 billion or whatever. Like it can't be for billions of devices because you know, new Android install rate, as Apple is quick to point out every time they do an event, is much, much lower than uh, on iOS. Like, it's like 10% or something like that are always on the newest version. So, and usually those are people who have either a Google phone, so they are well off enough to afford a, a Google branded device or you know, because because the other OEMs like Samsung, they they push out updates whenever they fucking feel like it. Yeah. So you might not even if you have a high end device, you might not get the new OS right away because they have to put their own swag on it, right? Yeah. Okay, so we talked about home and back. I want to talk about when you're on the home screen. By the way, I think this is going to come off like predominantly negative about the gestures just because there's things that are confusing. So at the macro level, I feel like this is the right direction, but some things are confusing in the interim. All right, so when you're on the home screen of your phone, swipe up. Uh-huh. 
and that opens we'll call this like your app drawer app drawer uh-huh. how do you close the app drawer can you swipe it back down yeah swipe it back down wait what mine doesn't swipe back down yeah swipe back down mine doesn't swipe back down unless i grab uh the search bar oh boy mine does i literally can't swipe that whole view down okay well then fuck i guess i have to swipe back up from the bottom to close the app drawer that works too yeah i can't go the other way and if you pull it up slightly and pause just like on ios your most recently used app will pop in from the left side, and then you can scroll horizontally through a recent history of your apps. Although mine only saves like five or so. The cool thing is that while you have this app switcher open, you kind of have like a secondary dock that is, I think, based on your most recently or most frequently used apps, even if they're not in your home dock, that bottom row. Yeah. When you swipe up and go into App Switcher, you kind of have the most re- or most common apps. So it's like five most common apps and then your most recent apps by, by usage as the actual previews. As well as a search input to just Google something. Yeah. Or, and you can even search your, you can search settings, you can search for apps there. Like, yeah, you can, it's, it's, it's an omnibar. Yeah. Okay. Well, then let's talk about just one more like main gesture change that. I find confusing, but perhaps it's just something, it's confusing because it's new and you'll get used to it quickly. And that is swiping up from the bottom takes you home or enters you into app switching mode. It's the same as the iPhone. But if you swipe up from the bottom corners, it enters the Google Assistant mode. Mm -hmm. I can hear you doing it. You can hear me popping it when I say Google. So the corners, it feels like I'm prone to doing the wrong thing at the wrong time. But I'm curious how that decision strikes you to have the corner bottom corners swiped up, do one thing, and then anywhere else swiped up does like the standard take me home. So actually, I've I've asked for this before on iOS before. I, I, I'm not a big fan of the top right being control center on iOS, and I've always been like, well, why can't there just be like a like bottom left, right? Bottom center is swipe up for my app stuff, but like, let me choose a corner or something to get to control center so I don't have to adjust my grip to get into control center. So I'm a big fan of this. I mean, it doesn't give me control center. because it <laughs> gives you assistant, yeah. The yeah, voice, it's something voice I don't, don't, don't use very often. Um, but I do like it as a gesture. It's, it's hard to do on accident, right? Like, it's almost hard to do on purpose even. <laughs> I think the control center is a great thing to bring up because I remember when the iPhone 10 first came out, I had the same reaction. Like, it's going to be too confusing for people that one corner of the screen does something different. My hunch is it's actually probably still confusing for people that don't use it all the time or like that don't know that control center even exists. Like, there's probably people that don't discover that. I know that they do, Apple does certain things on the home screen where there's like a little bouncing bar that says, like, you know, pull down from here. So, anyways, I got used to it. So it's probably the same thing here on Android. like, yeah, if it's your daily driver, you just get used to it. You have that option to you from the corner. Otherwise, hopefully it's like fuzzy enough to know what you're actually trying to, to do, whether it's dismiss or open the assistant. I want to talk about one other gesture that is unique to Android. Hit me. I don't know if you have it enabled or if you've ever encountered this, but the swiping on the fingerprint sensor in the back, have you, do you have that set up to bring down notification center? Oh, do I have that turned on? No, I don't, but I know what you're talking about. Let me let me pull that up. Yeah, so this is really interesting. So for my hand size, at the very least, the fingerprint sensor lands right where my index finger kind of wants to fall. Maybe a little bit above, but like basically where my index finger falls, the way I hold the phone. I'm a I'm a pinky easel kind of guy. I don't know about you, Brian, but yeah. I, I put my pinky on the on the bottom of the phone like an easel and use my other fingers to support the sides. Oh well you are you're right at home with the new iPhone eleven. Pro Max, because when you get the bigger phone, that's your life. That's the only way to do it. That's the only way to hold your phone, yeah. So uh, the fingerprint reader on the back, it can tell if you're swiping down on it or swiping up on it, and you can use it as like a little gesture thing to pull down notification center. So one swipe down makes notification center appear. And because Android combines control center and notification center into a single screen, wherein control center is at the top. They probably call it something different. I don't know. But that's where all your like Wi-Fi, Bluetooth, dark mode, all that stuff is. Uh, another swipe down on the fingerprint sensor opens that up. So you don't ever have to reach up to the top of the screen. You can continue holding your phone the way you want to hold it, which is, for me, the pinky easel style. And another swipe up dismisses it. So you can get at all this stuff without ever having to change your grip. I don't know if you've played around with that, Brian, but 
I find it really cool. It is cool. I'm playing around with it now. Are all the Pixel phones Touch ID or, or fingerprint unlocked, or have they started also switching over to Face ID type authentication? I don't think Google Pixels have Face ID. Pretty sure they don't. Yeah, well, I mean, certainly the 3A doesn't, and that's like the most recent one. Okay, yeah, it's it's a cool gesture. I, I wonder how long that'll stick around. I think it's certainly a creative use of that space, like making that thing where your finger's already probably close to that feels good now that i'm using it more i i want this do you use the squeeze oh yeah we could talk about squeeze too so i i don't use squeeze but it exists i i I guess actually the the bigger point here is i don't use any assistant like google assistant or otherwise so Mm -hmm. i don't open these things but yeah so if you're on one of the like is it only pixel devices uh you can squeeze the bottom half of your phone like squeeze the left and right side kind of just grip it harder and it'll open assistant Mm -hmm. the equivalent of holding the like sleep switch on on the iphone 10 yeah and i i never use siri either so i guess this is uh we're the wrong people to talk about it cool cool, not not the best person to ask about it but what's really interesting is some of these other some of these other things okay so like i said we have the the fingerprint sensor the squeeze but then do you use the flip to shh I love the name of that feature. Flip to shh. Flip to shh. What are you talking about? Yeah, so in gestures, there's also a thing called flip to shush, essentially, which is if you turn your phone face down on a table, after a couple seconds, it'll give you a little haptic to let you know that it's silenced. So if you're in a meeting and you want your phone to shop, stop vibrating or, or dinging or whatever, you can just turn it face down and it'll silence. And as soon as you pick it back up, it'll unsilence itself and give you a little haptic to let you know it did that too. Hold the phone. Uh, that's that's what I'm saying. You should hold your phone and turn <laughs> this on. <laughs> no, I didn't know that was possible. Yeah, that one's really nice. There's also, they have, I think iPhone has this too, where like it's lift to check. So if your phone's sitting down and you pick it up, it'll increase the screen brightness or like basically turn the phone on because it knows you picked it up. They have a similar thing to iPhone where you can double tap the screen instead of single tap. If it's if it's locked, you can double tap and it'll show your notifications and all that. Yep. Uh, which is really nice. Like that's one of the things that is on these new phones that makes older phones feel like they're broken. <laughs> like that should just work. When I tap the screen and the screen is off, it should turn the screen on. And that doesn't work on older phones, but it seems like a new thing that is table stakes now. Yeah, I feel... I forget who said it, but somebody was talking about raise to wake and tap to like turn on screen. Mm-hmm. And I think they tapped awake. I think. Tapped awake. They described those as like deeply human interactions, and I agreed. And it's because it's the device responding to your hand in a very like tactile and like intuitive way. Whereas, yeah, if you hold somebody's iPhone seven or whatever, anything older, it truly feels broken, or it feels like the phone is a dumb piece of glass instead of this thing that's connected to your hand. I don't, it's there's such small details, but it does make a pretty big difference. It's like if your friend was taking a nap and you wanted to wake him up, what would you do? You'd tap him on the shoulder. Right? <laughs> tap give tap him, them on the face. Get a little couple taps <laughs> on the face. Yeah. R- raised awake. I'm going to cradle them in my arms and just slowly tilt them upwards. Yeah, so just treat your phone like a friend. You just put a wet <laughs> finger in your phone's ear and uh-huh. um, that'll wake it up. <laughs> you can imagine wet willy to wake. <laughs> wet willy to wake. This uh. will expire your warranty. So let's let's conclude. Do these changes within Android 10, specifically the gestural navigation? Does this make the phone a more compelling daily driver for you? Does it make a difference? Does it feel like it's serving another purpose, perhaps like just that making that migration easier for people switching from iOS? Like for that last qualification, absolutely. If you're coming from iOS and using Android, this will feel relatively native. There's enough stuff that you'd be like, oh, that's kind of different, like the app drawer and stuff. But like, for the most part, you can, uh, like, I've even done it not thinking, like the back swipe gesture. That's just muscle memory for me at this point as an iOS user, 99% of the time. And I've been using this Android phone for the last week or so because of this question. And it's just second nature to, to that back swipe. And uh, I do it all the time and don't think about it. And it's, it's made my life so much easier. Same thing, swipe up from the bottom to go home or to switch apps. Like, it all just feels native. It all feels, well... It is native. It all it all feels natural. I guess, I guess I should say. You didn't have a new learning curve. I always had to adjust every time I went to an Android phone before. I always had to. There was an adjustment period of like minutes where I'm like, "Oh right, yeah." <laughs> minutes, literal <laughs> minutes. Are you hearing these people? Yeah. Dozens of us. <laughs> yeah. So to answer your question, yes, this will make switching for anybody way easier. And honestly, I just think these are better gestures. I'm not sure what. 
the rules are for like adopting, you know, is this like a stories thing where it's like, oh, you know, Snapchat defined the stories idea. And that's just kind of a media type that anybody can use now. And Instagram has it and everybody has it, right? Is this just like, oh, this is just how touchscreen phone navigation should be. And Apple stumbled across it first, but like everybody's going to use it because it's just the right thing to do and it feels normal. It's a good question. I think the one that is in huge conflict is this swiping from left to right on Android. Right to left. No, where you could swipe from either direction to either direction and it's always going back. There's no concept of like swipe forward and so it breaks some spatial navigation. Well, that's why I said right to left. I think left to right is fine. Yes, yes. That should always be back, yeah. Yep. It's the right to left one that's a problem, yeah. That should be an option. It should be one or the other. Like if you're in an RTL language country or... If you are left-handed and that feels more comfortable to go from the opposite side, I don't know, whatever. It should be one or the other. It shouldn't be both. It doesn't make any sense. Right. All right. Well, Yule, we talked about it. At length. At length. If we miss anything, hit us up. Let us know if we miss anything specific to Android 10. All right. This has been a uh, long and, and continues to get longer episode. Marshall, let's wrap up with cool things. All right. I have a quick one. Yep. So as I mentioned last episode, I was starting to get sick. The prophecy came true. I did become very, very sick throughout the week, which was terrible for my work week, but great for this podcast because I'm, I'm my voice is almost back to normal now. I sounded really terrible on Wednesday. So during that time off, I couldn't do a whole lot. But one of the things that brightened my day... <laughs> On Wednesday, <laughs> brought was, joy to your life, brought joy to my heart, indeed, and a smile to my face. Was Survivor is back, Brian? Season thirty nine of Survivor is here. It's glorious. Uh, only one episode is out so far, but it has already met my expectations. I'm very happy. Have you started watching it, my friend? I haven't, but give me give me a teaser on like what's the hook for this season? Okay, it's like isn't it celebrity or like God Island or something? Island of the Idols. Island of the Idols. Okay, yeah, yeah. talk to me. Which is kind of a little bit misleading, or it can sound a little bit misleading if you don't know what it means, because like there's always these hidden immunity idols, and that's what keeps you safe is is the idols, but the idols in in this season is a reference to previous like all stars of of the show. So. The hook of this season is you get voted to be sent to this island by, if you're on the losing team of a challenge, you get sent to the Island of the Idols. And when you get there, there are two former players, both of whom have won. One of the players is the only person to have won twice, which is fucking crazy to me that someone gave her a million dollars twice. But yeah, so Sandra and Boston Rob are the two idols on the island of the idols, and they give, they're basically like, let me be a mentor to you, right? And like, I teach you to build fire or help you out with your alliance or any any sort of uh, advice we can give you. We will be here to help you, right? But but nobody knows what's actually happening on the island, and only one person has gone so far. So that'll be really interesting. So there will be a chance for them to re-enter the game with this. Nope, nope. They're not players. They're not players. They're not there to win money. They're only there to help people and provide guidance based on all of their knowledge from playing several seasons past. No, no, no. Not those people. But the people, the person who got voted off, will they have a chance to re-enter the game with the new advice? No, no, no. You're not. You're not voted off. You're just sent there for like a day. Oh, oh, you just go get some advice, catch up, meet some celebrities. Mm -hmm. Cool. Got it. And that's what's interesting, though, is because it previously, like when you get sent to Extinction Island or any other thing, like you're, you're either out of the game or on the outs, right? Like it's a bad thing to go. Like you have to fend for yourself. There's no tools or anything. Like either you starve or you find some way to feed yourself during the day that you're there or whatever. But this is actually like a help. So they always switch something. They always change something. And this time it's like, oh, the thing that has always been negative is positive this time and, and, and in a way that has never been positive before. Yeah, okay. Cool, cool. Uh, I'll catch up. And new episodes are on Wednesdays? Correct. Yep. Okay. Yeah, cool. Wednesdays. Oh, yeah, also New South Park on Wednesdays too. Wednesdays are good for, for the Bach household. <laughs> yeah, maybe we need a, if anyone's interested in a Survivor fan cast, maybe we can. Patron extras. Patreon extras. <laughs> Patreon extra, you get to hear our take on Survivor episodes. Cool. <laughs> All right, cool thing. My cool thing this week is something that I tweeted, which had some interesting side effects. Okay. Well, here, let me back up. Let me tell you about this company called Ugmunk, which is yeah. a clothing, apparel, and recently like an objects company. Like they just sell nice things, product company, but they sell things that other companies make as well. So like they sell these really 
beautiful tumblers. Like I have one of the Kinto tumblers. They had a really successful, or I should say he, it's basically one guy, Jeff Sheldon, right? Yeah. He, he had a really successful uh, Kickstarter with that like desktop. The Gather. Organizer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm a, I'm a long time Ugmunk fan. Yeah. Okay. So I'm long time lurker, very recently a customer. So they launched, I think they're in like their 11th year or something, and they did some big uh, feature release this year, which included new essential tees, which are just plain t-shirts. And I'm a plain t-shirt kind of fellow. You are. I have experimented with many, many brands. I've kind of ended up just wearing Everlane t-shirts and they're fine, but they kind of suck after a few washes and I've just dealt with it and like replaced often because they're relatively cheap. I think Everlane's like 15 bucks or something. So it's cheap enough that you could justify wearing it for you know half the normal length of time. So anyways, picked up some Ugmunk Essential Tees at this point a couple months ago, and they're the best. They're the best t-shirts I've worn. Like, I don't know how else to describe it. They're great. Cool designs too, right? Yeah, I have the plain ones, but the designs are nice too if you're into that. Like I see, I see that mountains design everywhere. Everybody wears that. Like yeah. the two triangles overlapping. Yeah, it's like freshman year designer. Like that's part of the welcome pack is like you get the mountains t-shirt from Ugmunk. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah, yep. A coffee mug in your right hand. and then... Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I guess my cool thing this week is kind of just Ugmunk.com. So if you haven't heard of it or if you've been on the fence and like lurking like I was for, at this point, years, I highly recommend checking out the Essential Tees. But what I did on Friday, I tweeted out just like, I love these t-shirts, I think I said. And I DM'd Jeff and I said, seriously, I love the t-shirts. And he replied back and he's like, dude, your tweet is sending me sales. I was like, okay, this is weird. And then my coworkers started messaging me on Slack saying, hey, I'm buying these t-shirts because of your tweet. And I'm like, holy shit, I'm a brand ambassador. I'm a thought leader. Oh my God. <laughs> You're a twin fluencer. Yeah. No, but anyways, it got it got the gears turning. And I was like, fuck, this is cool that a company that I like that makes a product that's good I can like actually have, I can send people their way, like go buy com- stuff from this company. Like this person deserves it. It's a great business and great, great product. Mm-hmm. So anyways, Jeff and I got to talking and we realized that one thing that could be cool is to hook design details listeners up with a specific promo code for the Ugmunk shop. So the way we've structured it is uh, we have a promo code available for our patrons I think we're going to put it at the eight-point grid and up tier. So $8 or more per month on our Patreon, uh, we're going to share this promo code that gets you 10% off the entire Ugmunk store. So if you're going to load up on T-shirts, might be a couple hundred bucks, we'll save you 10%. Uh, That'll be posted on our Patreon for the eight-point grid tier and up. So yeah, I don't know. I I don't want it to feel like gross, but this came about very organically where I just tweeted, like, these shirts are dope. You should buy them. Yeah, I don't have a problem hawking products that we believe in and use and, you know, are personally invested in, right? Like, Yeah, it gets dirty if it's something that we don't like. In this case, we love it. And if you can save money loving it too, then great. I think I bought my first Ugmunk product in 2011 or 2010, like early. I think I was season two. Right. Whoa. You're an Ugmug hipster. Look at you. Okay. So here's, here's, here's a little anecdote. So, uh, in December, Christmas 2011, before I, okay, two things happened that Christmas. I was at my parents' house. I asked for them to get me, because they never know what to buy me. I asked for them to get me an Ugmunk sweatshirt. And I got the email from Google during that trip saying like, hey, we'd be interested. Here's your design exercise. Oh, wow. So like those two things happened on the, on the same Christmas. So I remember that was 2011 because I started in 2012 uh, at Google. So yeah, long time Ugmunk OG not quite day one, but uh, yeah, big, 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 big fan. They make awesome stuff. And I mean, you want to talk about design details. Like I think Ugmunk is the epitome of paying attention to the design details. Like if you look at his behind the scenes process stuff for all the leather work and all of the woodwork and stuff that they do, it's amazing. Well, even these t-shirts, so these essential tees, he, he put a behind the scenes video and there's a lot of thought into the construction of them, but also they're pre-washed. Like one of the reasons that I love these t-shirts is that like the Everlane ones, for example, they, they're so good that first wear that you'd never want to wash them. You're like, oh, I want it to always feel this good. But then inevitably you wash it and then it just gets a little bit crunchy, you know, like that post-wash crunch, or at least after a few washes. Ugmunk, they they pre-wash them before they even mail them to you. So they arrive 
somehow it's like super, super soft, but it's already gone through this process. So it's not going to have this dramatic difference after that first few washes. So yeah, super soft every time afterwards. But yeah, these are the details and he makes videos explaining the manufacturing and like sourcing the materials. It's awesome. Links in the show notes. Links in the show notes. Monk. we're going to hook up our patrons with a 10% off uh, site-wide coupon. So if that's interesting to you, patreon.com slash design details, which leads us beautifully into the end of the show. This has been episode 316 of the Design Details Podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. If you did, we would love your support. Head on over to patreon.com slash design details. Every dollar that you feel like you can part ways with, it really does make a difference to produce this show. Uh, We have Sarah and Drew, our editor and producer who work on this every week. They make it possible. And that is what your contributions are going towards. So thank you. We appreciate it. Uh, And of course, thank you, Sarah and Drew, for another episode in the bag. If you need more podcasts, go to spec.fm. Sarah and Drew also produce podcasts on the Spec Network, which is our parent podcast network, making shows for designers and developers just like you. So go to spec.fm if you need more podcasts. Otherwise, hit us up on Twitter. Leave us an issue on our GitHub repository if you have a question that you would like us to answer. If you want us to answer anonymously, or if you want to ask anonymously, you can DM us, you can email us. Please, just contact us. We love we love comments and messages, and we will reply and, and get back to those as quickly as we can. So please continue to do so, and otherwise, we'll catch you next week. Bye.